You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Welcome, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan. Um, Right across from me, we have Anya. Good morning. Uh, good morning, everybody. We don't, unfortunately, have George and Lauren, mm. um, but they will be back um, soon. But hopefully, you know, you've got us, so don't so, be too yeah. disappointed. <laughs> if you tuned in just for George and Lauren, maybe, maybe yeah. goodbye. <laughs> maybe goodbye. I love it. Switch off. There's, yeah. Um, okay, so what, what did you get up to? Um, over the weekend, um, well, I was a bit under the weather, so I mostly stayed at home and binged on Netflix mm. and read some books and felt sorry for myself. Sorry for yourself? Mm. Wow. Wow. Why? You know, when you're sick, you just become a child and you start um, missing your parents and, you know, like my family doesn't even live here, so it's just, yeah. Mm. Mm. Aww. Not great. What no. about you? Oh, sorry to take you down that path. <laughs> Look at me. I'm too you know, soon. Like, I egged you on. I'm just like, what happened? You know, it it can never go like never ask, never ask. Mm. <laughs> um, what did I get up to? Um, that's a good question because you actually asked me before we came on air what I got up to, and I honestly am drawing a blank. Mm. All I know was that it must have not been exciting. For, because I can't remember what I did. Hmm. I think I stayed home. I think it was a more chill. That's exciting. Weekend. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. Um, I watched some Netflix as you do. Yeah. When you've got nothing better to. What do. are you watching? Um, so I watched the sixth season of um, American Horror. Stop it! Me too. <laughs> the first episode of season eight came out. I heard. Ooh, um, not feeling it. Not feeling it. Just. Putting mm. it out there. Okay. The first episode. Yeah. It's, I don't, it's too futuristic for me. Mm. I don't, like, I'm, yeah. I'm waiting for the, um, like, the ghost, the supernatural elements yeah. to come in. Yeah. Right now, it's just like, oh, okay, yeah. It usually starts really promisingly and then descends into this glee madness. I mean, you know, it is Ryan Murphy who is the director of the show, which makes sense. Mm. Um, but it's such a, it's so fun. Yeah. Yeah. For a binge. For a binge. Mm. Yes. So, um, but we thought we would, we've got an amazing lineup of interviews, actually. We've got more than we can handle Mm. (laughs) right now. It's so funny. We've got five amazing guests coming on today. Mm. There are only two of us. With two presenters. (laughs) So look at us killing the game. Mm. Um, but we thought we would start off maybe with a song. Mm Mm-hmm. 
um, by an artist that you picked, actually. Her name is Jenny... Lena. Lena. And she's doing a cover of one of my favorite classics of all time. So yes. maybe we'll just um, to. play it. Perfect. And it's called Who's Loving You? launch of the 2019 How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary on Saturday the 6th of October from 3 to 6pm at the Old Bar, Johnson Street, Fitzroy. There'll be readings as well as music from Cold Hands, Warm Heart and Laura McFarlane. Entries free. Proceeds from the diary sales and 20% of the afternoon's bar takings will be donated to 3CR and the Rainforest Information Centre. So come read, drink and be merry. How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary launch. The Old Bar, Saturday 6th of October, 3 to 6pm. See you there. 3CR supporter. We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids and come in black, white, grey and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 94198377 or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law. 6 p.m. Tuesdays. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Ayan and myself, Anya. That was Who's Loving You by, um, well, originally by the Jackson 5, and this was a cover by Jenny Lena. Incredible. Um, who, incredible yeah, this incredible artist from Holland, I'm pretty sure. Um, next up, we have Queenie Bonbon who is a political comedic writer, performance artist, pleasure provider and fantasy maker. She joins us to discuss her upcoming performance at the Melbourne Fringe Festival. It's called Welcome to the Mystic Hole. With Queenie as your curious guide, she will take you on a tour of her magical and messy universe, deep within the wondrous wonders of the unique portals we travel in. Thank you so much for joining us today, Queenie. Hi, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Um, let's start by talking about how you got into performance. Um, I feel like it was like a like nearly an accident that I um, was documenting lots of things that um, like stories of my office life, and I would read them a lot to my coworkers. And um, when it, uh, four years ago, someone was like, "Oh, you should just do a reading at Fringe," and I was like, "Oh, I could just do a little reading," and it just really 
um, it, like a little reading just became a, a one show that mm. became a tour that became a long tour that <laughs> mm. that really started everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and tell us about your upcoming show. Welcome to the Mystic Hole. Um, so it's my third full length show. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really about um, the idea of like being in the body. I feel so much um, as sex workers, we're often so much portrayed as like you know the images that we have of us. They're often like us leaning into a car, a blurred face. Like we're never like we're so disallowed mm-hmm. to be even like a full person. And so I really have the strong idea of like what it is like to fully be in our bodies because our work is so much about the body and so much about other people's bodies. Mm-hmm. And what is there a particular? Um, event or something that inspired you to create this show? Um, I think it was just, it was really um, a lot about like my mental health and just the idea of like the, um, there's so much about this like happy hooker narrative that we need that is really portrayed often when people, when um, people want to hear about sex work. And I just really wanted to sort of give this option that actually we're messy, complex beings just Mm. like everyone else. Mm. Yeah. And you've described um, the show as part comedy, part lecture, part consciousness-raising storytelling. Can you expand a little bit on these different aspects of the performance? Yeah, I think that um, I I don't have really have an arts background, and I haven't been trained in any of these things. Mm. And I think that, like for me, it was really important that there were like um, like joyous, fun elements I could really capture. But also, I think the idea of like consciousness-raising with this. You know, I think just like more traditional idea of that people like attempting to focus attention um, on like a cause or condition that there's really this space for this to happen in, in my shows. Mm. Mm. And is there um, a political element to the show as well? Um, I think there's, there's always like a political element when people um, are writing out bodies, especially mm. ones that um, are criminalised. And they're so others. So I think um, it's just like in, inherently political, but there also are a lot of bits about um, just sort of like a very literal thing about like the, the legislations and the way that we, the frameworks that sex workers are forced to work under and the sort of like systemic mm. dangers that we face in our lives. Yeah, I suppose so. Anything you do or the space that you occupy is inherently political. Um, yeah. And that's, yeah, okay. Um, and you've performed Welcome to the Mystic Hole before. I'm pretty sure that was the show that, um, yeah, Tuesday Breakfast as a team went to watch as one of our very first group activities. Which, can I say, yeah. for me, was amazing. So good, yeah. <laughs> Cracked me up, killed me. <laughs> yeah, we've never ruffled as much <laughs> that show before. Um, so what's, what's been the reception like? Um, it's been really good. So I just came back from touring the show in Europe. Mm. Um, it's been really wonderful to be able to connect to so many, um, to so many sex workers globally and be able to just really connect the idea that like how important it is to document our stories and how mm. diverse our stories are, but how vital it really is for mm. them to be, to be heard and for them to be to, to be seen and it's been really powerful to have that mm. to be I feel really grateful to have that witnessing yeah yeah did you notice any major differences between um the the reception in Europe versus here um not I feel like there's just like the, the difference is not I feel not really like the geographical I feel like the difference is um when I um 
have a more like peer audience or when it's sort of more um like civilians who um are often just like really surprised like you know sort of like how did you get here like mm. are you a real person are these <laughs> your real stories mm. whereas i think sex workers are like yeah of course yeah. <laughs> it's obvious this is like this is real this is our lives yeah yeah um so how can people get more information and how can they buy tickets to see your show uh, it's on a fringe. Um, it, the show opens on Saturday. It runs for a week. Um, and if you just go to the fringe website, welcome to the Mystic Hall. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We'll put that up on our Facebook um, page. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today, Queenie. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Hi, I'm Maurice. And I'm Mario. And we're Chronically, Chronically Chilled. A program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled, the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing whitefellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. If you're tuning back in, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Anya. Anya, um, sadly, George and Lauren are not here today, but they will be back and we do miss them. And I'm guessing our listeners miss them as well. Um, but we just want to thank Lauren for uh, making this interview happen, the one that's about to take place this second. So with us in the studio, we have... Um, Carly. Carly is the creator of Insane, a new mental health podcast with a focus on lived experience and peer support. The podcast launches on 20th of September. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Carly. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for um, coming in so early, um, so bright and early. (laughs) Um, So you're about to launch your first ever podcast titled Insane. Um, Can you give us um, some information about what the podcast is about? Yeah, definitely. So Insane is a peer-led podcast um, in nature and conversation. I invite guests to chat to me about their lived experience of mental health struggles and to share with me how they got through it all, 
or how they um, enabled it to get manageable or a little better. Mm -hmm. My purpose through holding these conversations is to show people that they are not alone and things can get better. Mm. I'd like to facilitate some hope. And that's because people with a lived experience, they often represent the hope that's missing in uh, people's lives. You know, Mm. they've got experience and education that is unique and just so valuable. Um, There's a lot of evidence showing that peer support is a crucial and effective strategy for ongoing health care and behaviour change. Mm. And these benefits have been shown to extend to, you know, community, societal and organisational levels. Um, Peer support's also been shown to, you know, really, really affect behaviour change, and that can also lead to medication adherence and it can um, make the use of emergency services decrease. So mm. I just think it's a really important kind of space. Mm. Why a podcast? Why did you feel um, a need to put it on this medium, I guess? Um, I think that, you know, a lot of people can self-isolate when they are experiencing mental health issues, mm. so... You know, especially with mental health, it is quite stigmatized. So you wouldn't really necessarily sit down in public and be like, oh, hey, I'm really, really struggling right now. Can we have a conversation about it? Mm. Because, you know, this area is quite emotive and, you know, you might cry. You might be talking about the deepest, darkest things in your life. So accessing content like a podcast, Mm. it's easy. You can listen to it in your own time, in your own space. It's your time. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's the beauty about podcasts because I listen to it everywhere. Like when I'm at mm. the gym, oh, my God, public transport. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's incredible. So you've got all these amazing content in your head and you're like, <laughs> you can't see what I'm listening to. <laughs> Which is, yeah. yeah. So, um, and, I, and, I, and I do understand a bit. As someone who um, uh, struggles with um, depression, mm. um, having, I think this podcast for me would be so useful because... It's that extra friend, so you you can never have enough support, I feel like. Mm. So, yeah, I do appreciate the podcast element. Um, Who did you interview the um, podcast for, and why did you choose them? Well, I was lucky enough to have friends and family wanting to share their stories and time with me. Um, I shared a post on my social media feeds saying, you know, I was starting my passion project. It was in the mental health sphere. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to get involved, contact me and I'll let you know more information. So I had a big call back, um, a lot of people messaging me, and I sent them more information about really what it was all about. It was a podcast, sent them the pre-episode screener, and that was really to ascertain, I guess, people's current well-being status mm-hmm. and also, you know, seeing if they were able to talk about it before getting them on to have a chat about it. So... Um, the criteria I had in my head was people to have, you know, be in a state where they could talk about it. Mm. Um, people who had struggled and like gotten through the worst and could really um, provide some practical tools for other people who might be struggling as well. Mm. Um, it just so happened that everyone in season one is amazing, had a lot of really valuable experience. I've been blown away by everyone who's been on. Um, I also really wanted to interview my mum. I don't know how she's still alive, and I thought her mm. story is just, it's really special. She really inspires me. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I'm, I'm always trying to get mum on, on radio. Oh, really? I, I think we're always trying to, like, yeah, rope in our family because the, yeah. the information that they have and just the oh. wisdom and, you know, I'm mm. and. I don't know, sometimes I feel like they don't realise just how impactful they are. 100%. And they don't realise just how important their, um, I guess, contributions are. They're like, oh, it's not people like, (laughs) what can I bring? And you're like, hello, just get to talking (laughs) and we will do the rest. 
Yeah. Yeah. So um, what do you hope this type of storytelling will achieve? Well, on, on the lighter end of the spectrum, I hope that it enables people to kind of, you know, have the early intervention before their mental health gets to a point where it, in, in, where it affects school, uni, work, relationships or whatever. And not to be too dark, but on the other side of the spectrum, I want less bodies in bags. You know, I've lost a lot of people to suicide over the last couple of years and my broader community has lost even more people to suicide. Mm. So the impacts of suicide are that to the power of 10. Um, You know, I always think, what might one person do or how much longer may they stay alive if they don't feel so alone? Mm. You know, people already isolate. They already feel horrible about themselves. So I really hope it facilitates conversation. I hope... People don't feel so alone. I hope it provides understanding of things as well. Mm. Yeah. And you you did mention your mum was interviewed, but you also um, uh, shared your own experiences mm. um, on the podcast. What was that experience like? Oh, my God. <laughs> it was so nerve-wracking. I was, it was really, really confronting. Um, I really wanted to do that, though, because I was asking people to share with me their struggles. So I thought mm. it would be, you know quite important that I kind of show why I was asking why this was important to me but um yeah it was really helpful because then I could also understand what my guests would be like you know how they felt before during and after the interview I got my brother to interview me because um I couldn't have done it with anyone else (laughs) you know that can sometimes go (laughs) pear-shaped yep yeah he was really good um I was filled with self-doubt the entire night before I couldn't sleep I was like this whole um, this whole project is dumb, just can it. Mm. And then I was really, really excited. And when he was interviewing me, I just felt like I was on a roll. And then afterward, he went home and I had like a bit of an adrenaline dump. Mm. I was like, oh, this is bizarre. Did I even answer anything properly? Yeah, but um, I feel really good about it now. And it's also a sign of growth. I would never, ever, ever have done this like a year ago, mm. two years ago, five mm. years ago. So, yeah. A roller coaster. <laughs> and I love that you said it's a sign of growth because people don't realise just how um, scary it is to tell oh, your story. Yeah. Like, even if you're telling it for the fifth time, it's just mm. as scary. And I loved when you said um, after afterwards you were like, what did I say? Did I say enough? <laughs> yeah. It's such a scary feeling. So for you to um, push through, that's amazing. So we do, yeah. Um commend you on that um thank you so the podcast is coming out like we said on 20th of september mm-hmm. where can we listen to it so you'll be able to access it where you get all your podcasts you know itunes spotify oh, yum. <laughs> yeah, good um yeah so i'm gonna drop an episode weekly for 12 weeks on thursday so the first season will drop this thursday um you can check us out on twitter and instagram i do have to say though i wanted this project to be very serious but my humor and like my dark humor really shone through so <laughs> mm. if you don't like dark humor it might not be palatable for yeah. you <laughs> i just really wanted to say that <laughs> yes yes content warning yeah <laughs> not for the faint so um yeah but thank you so much and we will definitely be um listening in i remember when lauren told me you were coming on I was like, okay, but can I listen to it before we interview her? She's like, it hasn't come out yet, relax. But yeah, so catch the podcast on 20th of September, um, as Carly said, on Spotify and all the amazing places where you get to listen to um, incredible content. Thank you so much, Carly. Thank you so much for having me.
genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. That's one thing white fellas learnt in the last 200 years, to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement, and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune into Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. Um, let's get some tunes. Um, uh, there's a song I really love. Like I've loved it ever since um, I first heard it. It's I feel like a song that really um, captures the mood of today's show, which is just about self-acceptance, resilience. Um, the song is called Video by a favourite in DRE. Rumination. 3CR's Rooming House and Homeless Persons Issues Program featuring information on health and housing services as well as live local guests, artists and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12pm on Thursday on 3CR 855 AM. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Welcome to Tuesday, welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. So, because you are coming back if you've been listening in, <laughs> um, that was the amazing Carly. Um, who, uh, yeah, who was here to talk about her podcast. What a great interview. Oh, and also, yeah, the, the importance of, you know, sharing your mental health struggles so yes. openly. Yeah. Even though it's so scary. It is so scary. Yeah. I really wanted to, I wanted to convey how, how scary that is. Like, mm. I want, because I don't think people realize just how um, mm. vulnerable you've got to be to be like, hello world, this is me. Yeah. That should be, that's a song. But, um, yeah, like personally, but also professionally yeah. and... Mm. Yeah, the stigma yeah. is real. This, oh my goodness! Like I, I, people think that we've come a long way, but mm. the annoying thing is that sometimes people—that's all they see. Mm. They don't—they don't see the um, multiplicity mm. of, of 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 your spirit. Like yeah. they just see you as oh, a yarn who has this, yeah. and that's all you become. And the intersections of. Yeah, class and race and, and gender and all of that as well. Absolutely. Such a, yeah. Absolutely. And I guess that's why we, we had to give a little shout out to Indiari. Mm. Um, so you heard Indiari with 
video, such an important song um, about, like we said, self-acceptance. Mm. Um, but we've got more amazing music. Who do we have? Um, we've got... Uh, Tuesday breakfast favorite Mojo <laughs> Juju. Oh, that's your favorite. <laughs> who, we, uh, who we interviewed last week. Yes. Um, I'm, I still think about that interview <laughs> a lot. Um, so this song is called "They Come and They Go." They come and they go. That's the sound of the police. Officer, 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 officer. Officer, officer, And that was KRS One with Sound of the Police. And before that, you heard um, a song by Mojo Juju. They come and they go. Yes. Thank mm. you for jumping. <laughs> I drew a blank. Um, so right now, uh, we want to play an audio. Um, by Mariki Onis, um, Amy McGuire, um, uh, Dr. Gary Foley, and also somebody by the name of Birds. I think I forgot if they're a rapper or a singer. Or I do apologize to Birds. Um, so it's a video. Um, it's an audio that looks at um, like what's happened since the deaths, um, the Royal Commission into the deaths. Um, in custody and pretty much says what we have been saying, um, that not much has changed. And we want to play this audio in light of the two young boys who drowned in the Western Australia River on September 11th, who were being pursued by police officers. Um, and the boys were under suspicion, so they hadn't even been... Um, in custody or or whatnot. So um, the boys clearly were so terrified of the police that to that they were willing to escape into a river, and sadly, two of the boys um, didn't make it. So we think it's important to um, highlight just the um, the impact of uh, the police state and. Um, what it does to black lives, especially um, indigenous lives. So we're just going to play the audio now. Um, maybe some content warning if this, um, if talking about deaths in custody, um, if you believe that it might pose a, um, a trigger, please tune out for the next two minutes. But let's listen to the audio now. 30 years ago, I was part of the Australian Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Not much has changed since then. Around 340 Indigenous people have died in custody since the Royal Commission handed down its final recommendations in 1991. That's basically one dead Aboriginal person. For each of the 339 recommendations of that report, which remain ignored, unimplemented or only partially implemented, in some places, laws have been introduced that directly contradict the report. Which recommended that prison should be an option of last resort for law enforcement. Instead, policies like mandatory sentencing, imprisonment for not paying fines, paperless arrest laws, tough bail and parole conditions, and funding cuts to legal services, have meant that Aboriginal people are still going to jail in record numbers. And still dying in custody. 
Indigenous people are over 10 times more likely to be imprisoned than non-Indigenous people. And make up over 25% of the prison population. There are places in this country today where Indigenous children are over 50 times more likely to be incarcerated than non-Indigenous children. We are less than 3% of the population. But over 20% of deaths in custody. We are among the most incarcerated people on the planet. The next time you're wondering if this country is racist, ask yourself if these figures would be tolerated. If they applied to any other community. Is it really possible that a country with the resources, wealth and standard of living of Australia can't address these issues? Or is it simply the case that racism is in this country's DNA? That genocide is woven into every aspect of this country's economics, politics and laws? That over two centuries since invasion, we still live in a system designed to exterminate us. But we're still here. And we will always survive. Because this is our land. It always has been. It always will be. And that incredible audio that you just heard um, featured Dr. Gary Foley, Amy McGuire, Birds, and our favourite Marie Key Onis. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Next up, we have Jack Lattimore, who's live in the studio with us. Um, Jack is a Guri writer and researcher based in Melbourne and reporter and columnist for Guardian Australia and the Guri Mail. And he's here today to chat about his contribution to the recently published anthology, Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia. Thanks for joining us today, Jack. Not a problem. Um, without giving too much away, can you briefly tell us about your piece in the anthology? Uh, well, it's a story about me as a boy, me as a young man, and I think there's, there's parts of it that are getting onto where I am at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, the emphasis is on uh, that you never really finish growing up. Mm. Aboriginal, there's always new experiences. So. Yeah. Um, and in the story, you talk about while you were growing up, how you were trying to be more authentically Aboriginal. Yeah. Um, and you describe it as an interpretation based on a nostalgic imaginary assembled from the depiction of black fillers in popular television, film and print. Can you talk a little bit more about that, the desire to be more authentic versus playing to stereotypes? Yeah, well, what I was trying to get at is that always, growing up, I always knew I was Aboriginal from a very young age, Mm. um, which I think, you know, was fortunate because uh, a lot of people these days don't. They come to it late or, you know, they don't get to grow up on their country. Mm. Um, so although I knew that I was always Aboriginal, it felt as though 
uh, from my immediate surroundings and also um, from media mm. that I had to be more. There was this pressure to be uh, a real black fella. Mm. So that involved uh, people, um, you know, in my sort of social environment, non-Indigenous, uh, thinking that Aboriginal people only came from the top end, mm. um, you know, uh, and in the media, things like um, Crocodile Dundee, which, you know, was released when I was a young fella, mm. uh, their representations of, you know, I think it was Ernie Dingo, um, you know, wandering around the bush and, mm. you know, it was pretty funny and... Uh, you know, you're connected to these uh, ceremonies and stuff like that. So it was this, it was this sort of one-track idea of Aboriginal or yeah. Indigeneity, and yeah, um, you felt compelled to sort of uh, adhere to that to representation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, um, what we were doing was as Aboriginal as anything else. You know, it's just that. Uh, you know, people's interpretation wasn't as sophisticated back in those days. They mm. wanted a certain type of Aboriginal. And it goes, the reasons for that are, are, are many. Yeah. Um, you also talk about the social realities between Kendall, where your paternal grandparents were based and you describe as starch white, versus Port Macquarie, where your maternal side was based in. Yep. How does that impact upon the discovery or the realisation of your identity? Um, it didn't impact on the realisation of it, as mm. I said, always knew, mm. um, from as far back as I could remember. Uh, I do touch on in the story that there was still residue racism, even within my closest family, mm. um, by the time I came along. Mm -hmm. I think my mother experienced that a little bit more coarsely than I did, and then as I got older, I realised that, you know, she was still experiencing it in this town. <clears throat> in this town and when I was there the town was um, you know maybe a top population of 800 most of the families that have been there for you know 100 years or so all knew each other mm. um, there was some there was some new arrivals I suppose mm. but um, yeah it was very white and it was based on farming mm. and um, wood wood getting um, the sawmill and you know extracting timber um, so absolutely white and then all the Aboriginal people would have been displaced. Mm. Um, so where I say that I'm from Port Macquarie, but actually we're on Biripai, um, and I think we come from up around Rollins Plains, which is weird. It's on the north bank of the Hastings, mm. um, and it's kind of just south of Kempsey, which is Dungutty. Mm. So we were kind of this mix, uh, this halfway point between yep. uh, traditional Biripai, Hastings Valley, Biripai, mm. uh, and, you know, up, up into Dungutty country. Mm. So, yeah, we sort of, we'd go over to Port Macquarie as a young, young family, mm. and my parents were still very young, like, say, 19 and 21, mm. um, maybe a little bit older than that, not much, um, and of course... They were still growing up and doing all the things that you do when you grow up, going mm. out. Um, my grandparents were still young. Um, mm. My great-grandparents were still pretty young. Uh, I remember back to being babysat by my great-great-grandparents. <laughs> um, so, yeah, everyone was out you know, going wild, and, yeah. and we were the kids. Um, I'm the oldest of you know, many, 80 or you know, a lot of grandkids. Grand yeah. So, yeah, we, um, you know, we experienced 
our parents growing up, mm. which was wild. Yeah. And it was a long way away from the sorts of snoozy environments that we experienced yeah. in Kendall, which was all about regulation of time. You know, the, the cows mm. uh, needed to be milked. Yeah. <laughs> the trains come across on the hour. And it was also yeah. very regulated and sedate. Yeah. Whereas Port Macquarie was, you know, it was a wild mm. seaside town. Yeah. You touched a little bit on the residual racism of um, family members, which I thought we could talk about a little bit. Yeah. Racist family members. How, what, yeah. how do we deal? <laughs> uh, on non-Indigenous or Indigenous site, when we discussed this at the mm-hmm. Melbourne Writers Festival uh, to kids, it was a room full of kids, and I was talking about internalised racism. Yeah. Um, there weren't... As you can imagine, there weren't many in the audience that knew what I was talking about. They were from a very privileged, two very privileged schools. Mm. Um, so yeah, I experienced racism on the indigenous side, internalised, which, yeah, you know, I guess was bad, but it, it didn't impact upon me yeah. as badly as racism from close members um, of my dad's side, the non-indigenous side. Mm. Um, yeah, so you know, they questioned. They grew up in 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 a time, um, you know, say 40s, 50s, 60s, where they formed uh, their impression of Aboriginal people, their interpretation of Aboriginal people. Um, so, you know, they, they took on all that blood quantum sort of stuff. Mm. Um, again, whether you're really Aboriginal or whether you're having a bread out of you, mm. um, all of this sort of stuff. Uh, so they would, it was, you know, only say a handful, but... There would be that c- continual sort of we're getting you away from your savagery or from your mm. from being that native. You know, you don't go and hang out with them. You're one of us. Um, so that was confronting um, mm. because essentially, and I tried to get at it in the the piece. Uh, you know, they were impelling you to question your identity mm. um, and manipulating you to be something else. As I said. Um, always was aware that Aboriginal always had you know, uh, contact with cousins and stuff like that. So they're kind of pitting you against what mm. you already knew. Mm. And you're at a formative age, or I was at that sort of, you know, uh, that, uh, that period. Um, so that's kind of, that's really dangerous yeah. to be putting people in those positions where they're questioning you yeah. know, their existence mm. um, so deeply, you know, and mm. you, we see that today, you know, going on in the yeah. other areas. Yeah. Um, the one thing that really hit home for me, amongst many other things in the story, um, because it's something I've been through as well, is this bit where you say, as a young fella, I was never quite cluey enough to square that broader picture with my own glimpses of racism in the day-to-day. At school, towards the end of primary, the other kids decided that I ran fast and was good at football because I was abo. It never occurred to me to be outraged or indignant. I'm interested to find out when that switch happened, when mm. you realised that, oh, the things that they're saying about me is not actually a good thing and they're making fun of me. And then did that make you more hyper-aware of, of other things about you? Not hyper-aware, mm-hmm. but it was, a, it was a gradual, incremental, uh, you know, awareness. Mm. Um, so in 1988 was the year that I went into high school, mm. um, and we went down to the uh, 1988 bicentennial celebrations in Sydney. Mm. We had a friend who was on one of the tall ships, the reenactment of the first fleet, and I also had a lot of family that were living in Redfern that were part of the the mass uh, rally mm. demonstration. 
So we went and seen the friend sail into the harbour, you know, and all the ships. Mm. It was really packed down there. And then we walked across to uh, the tail end of the demonstration and seen Gary Foley, mm. you know, talking, and then went back to Redfern. Um, at the Empress Hotel, I think, and hung around there. Mm. Um, so that was the beginning, I think, of becoming politicised or aware mm. that there was a politicisation uh, around Aboriginality there. Mm. Uh, but, you know, be- becoming aware around about the same time, I guess, towards you know the end of Year 6 of 1987 uh, and then throughout 1988 that... Some of the things that had been said to me all along were, you know, they, they were touching a nerve or mm. there was a barb to them. Um, but, yeah, it wasn't immediate, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, straight to uh, fisticuffs or anything like that. Yeah, it was yeah. this gradual, incremental sort of awareness that, you know, it's still happening today, you know. I still read oh, things that yeah. you go, oh, right, okay, that's how that works. Or, yeah. you know, things... Dawn on you, like uh, when I was, it was actually the writing of the piece, the process was pretty cathartic in that way. Mm-hmm. That um, I kind of uh, considering earlier points earlier uh, in primary school, and there was that you know, the piece that I write, uh, the, the section that I write about the Walkman mm. that um, mm. a great auntie who you know owned sh- a shop and she used to go over to Hong Kong and source mm. stock and come back and she brought back this tape recorder, this Walkman. Um, and I had that at, at school in year five or year four. Mm. And the nuns, those, those were still nuns that were teaching in those days, they thought that I'd flogged it off somebody at the mm. school. Mm. And that would have been directly... You know, there had to have been a reason why they accused me of this yeah. instead of saying, oh, you know, of course you would have one. Yeah. Um, don't bring it to school, someone might steal it or whatever. Yeah. Other reaction, yeah. it was, who did you pinch this from? Mm. Where did you get it? And, you know, being taken to the principal's office and interrogated and all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, the, the process of it, of writing that, and, you mm. know, you, there's still stuff like... That, you know, comes to mind. Yeah, no, I can imagine. Um, and the authors fe- featured in this anthology, um, you know, come from different, they all have different, they're of different age groups and sexualities and genders and, and all of that. Um, but across all the pieces, did anything or did any particular theme stand out um, for you? Uh, well, there was a lot of experiences of going through school and being questioned, mm. you know, are you really Aboriginal? How Aboriginal are you? Mm. And that all goes back to that blood quantum stuff mm. um, what is blood quantum can you just oh well where they would you know you'd be assigned a certain percentage of or right. a fraction of um, aboriginality so mm-hmm. um you know i would be one sixteenth or something like that mm. like it didn't make sense yeah. they would just assign uh, an arbitrary number to you you know mm. um and i think you know officially it used to went at the height of the white Australia sort of policy when they were doing this sort of thing. Mm. And to go back to 1, 127th or something like that, mm. <clears throat> you know, completely absurd. Mm. Um, but the hangover of that was still present in the, definitely throughout the 80s and into the early 90s, where people say, oh, you know, you're a quarter or, you know, you're not full blood, there's no full bloods left, or just, it was, you know, it was 
as bad. It's still bad. And you still get people. I still hear it today. Yeah. Um, if I go yeah. to dinner with people that I don't really know and it comes up across the table and they yeah. say, oh, yeah, what percentage are you? And it's like, right. I get offended these days. I get up and walk out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of that in the stories, uh, but also the fact that, you know, people are still growing up. Yeah. And it's, you know, I'm 42 now mm-hmm. and I still... You don't you know, look it. I don't look it. I don't feel it. Um, mm. You know, sometimes I do, but mostly you're only as old as you were yesterday. So yeah. a lot of people in this anthology are still writing about, you know, this awareness, mm. this well, the growing awareness that they have. Mm. And it's like that. Yeah. You know, we're still questioning and critiquing um, who we are mm. and the environment around us and all of those things are constantly changing. So yeah. I think that was the constant, uh, you know, the common theme through it for me was that people are still navigating through what it means to be Aboriginal in Australia. Mm. It's, an, it's an incredible book and it's your story is an incredible story. Oh, thank you. Um, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. But pleasure. thank you so much for coming in. No, it's been such a pleasure. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Ayan and myself, Anya. We just had a chat with Jack Lattimore about his story in the anthology Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia. Highly, highly recommend this book. Get it now, read it now, and um, tweet at us about it. Next up, we have Arunda First Nations writer and performer Declan Ferber-Gillick, who's in the studio with us right now. Um, to talk about Big House Dreaming. Holding an unflinching and unapologetic queer black lens to the contradictions of the youth justice system, Big House Dreaming interrogates Australian masculinity, both black and white, and questions the scope of law, family, culture, and the helping professions. Thank you so much for joining us today, Declan. Great to be here. Without giving too much away, can you tell us more about the show and what inspired you to create it? Sure. Um yeah, I guess first of all, I can talk a bit about um, the kind of the very early moment of conception, um, which kind of came well before any kind of initiatory um, production of the text, uh, which was when I was living um, home in Alice Springs a couple of years ago, and the um, the Don Dale story on um, on Four Corners mm. dropped. I remember watching that and just feeling so. Uh, I was feel, and I was working. I was working for Aboriginal Legal Aid um, at the time up in Alice Springs, and my partner at the time was working in a school. Um, there was like ninety percent black fellow kids, and we were so so very immersed in this world. Mm. And um, just watched this documentary, and I just felt so mm. confused and um, and so sort of upset, and I guess outraged. But the underlying the outrage was just like this kind of this helplessness. And what I remember really feeling strongly was this sense of numbness and disconnection from the images that I was seeing. And I mm. felt really um, concerned that that I, on one hand there was this sort of cognitive dissonance. On one hand I felt um, very angry mm. and on the other hand I felt very numb and alienated. Mm. And so I, I sort of felt at the time as though I needed to respond to this as an artist and hopefully through that, through that response I could find um, 
the kind of humanity in it because I felt that just seeing the images alone, I felt really alienated from the, the human connection that mm. I was having to these young people. Mm. And so I guess over then, and there was a couple of years in between, mm. um, and there was a lot more sort of um, media and, and there's been a lot of campaigning and uh, people doing really good sort of community-based work up in Alice Springs and the NT. Mm. Um, and I, But I've been living sort of off-country for a fair bit of that time, so I was always sort of mulling it over and mulling it over and um, and watching things develop and, and yeah, early, and then um, the Deadly Fringe program, which is a, an amalgamation of um, it's a it's a, a joint initiative by um, Fringe Festival, uh, Melbourne Fringe, and um, Ilbidri, so they fund some First Nations. As we could talk a bit about Deadly Fringe in a minute, but okay. when that opportunity came up, I just um, I just pitched this idea, and it was and it became a kind of a a, a deeper a, an investigation into that into that um, that initial kind of moment of, like, what, what's going on in these places, you know? Mm. Yeah. And what are you trying to convey through this performance? Um, it's not really a question that I, um, I kind of dwell on too much. Okay. Um, yeah, it's not a... It's not a it's not a didactic piece of work that I don't have a particular message that I want people to walk away with. Yeah. Um, yeah. My work my work really resists that kind of urge. Mm. Um. So um. Yeah. I, 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 and that means that in that way I can without framing the work um I can allow people to take from it what because I think it's a broad enough it. work that people can make many many different interpretations of it hopefully. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And um, what was the collaboration process between you and Mark Wilson, who's the director? Sure, it's been a really fantastic yeah. um, process and a really enriching and um, an exciting one, mm. um, and not without its challenges. Mm. Um, Mark and I met um, last year at a show at La Mama, and we just sat next to each other just um, just randomly one night, oh, wow. and mm. started started talking. And I was sort of fairly, <laughs> I was sort of fairly new to, to theatre and very new to Melbourne theatre. Yeah, and um, and he's you know, very much a long-term kind of independent theatre maker has been doing it a long time and um, knows a lot about the scene and uh, it really has a, really has a good grasp of his craft. Mm. And um, we just started talking and um, we got along really well and found that we were very politically aligned and had a good, a really good social relationship. Mm. And um, he came to a, a reading of a couple of readings of my work and showed some interest in some of my some of my early work that I was writing in my master's degree last year and. Um, and I knew I had a bit of an idea of the kind of work he did. I knew he did. I knew he um, had a lot of experience working on one-man shows. Mm. Um, I like his political lens as mm. a as a kind of a, as a leftist queer theatre maker. Mm. Um, and and I like his I liked his aesthetic in some of the bits that I'd seen of his work. Yeah. And he just was really sp- spoken very highly of. Yeah. And I just went, look, this is work that I think that um, I could at the very least talk to him about. Yeah. And I just talked to him about it, and it just became really clear that um, he, he would make a really fantastic director. Yeah. And so he's been a director from the, from, the, from the outset. I spoke to him early on when I was, when I was writing the work. So I produced the text alone, um, but about halfway through or three-quarters of the way through writing the text, I was starting to send it to him so he could get an idea of the world of the play. Mm. But I would say I would deliberately... Uh, I keep the work very, um, very closed, a very closed process until that first draft is done. Mm. Um, and, but... but but I would start to open up and take feedback from him and start to, we'd start to kind of, it went from a text-based work to a sort of semi-devised work mm-hmm. towards the end where we were sort of collaborating a bit on the ideas of it. Yeah. Um, but I was very much in charge of the text, but, um, but we'd talk about the ideas and we'd talk about what's being conveyed and what we're actually wanting to interrogate with the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's just been um, incredibly sensitive to um, the nuances and my own authorship and the need for it to be a First Nations-driven work yeah. while at the same time providing this incredibly rigorous set of um, um, sort of um, technical and, and, and craft-based 
um, perspectives. So, yeah, eternally grateful for having made that connection, and 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 I, I would work with him again on a project at the drop of a hat. Yeah, yeah. it sounds incredible. Um, the show obviously deals with very heavy themes like youth incarceration, colonisation, race, and poverty, and and it seems to me that it's also very um, personal to you. Obviously, would you be comfortable sharing how writing and performing it has affected you or taken a toll on you personally, if it has? And did that sort of change along the way how your performance um, was influenced? <clears throat> yeah, it's a good question. Um, I guess writing writing a text for me, writing a first, getting through a first draft of a, of a performance text for me um, is always a real labour. It's really um, it, it requires a lot of um, focus, and I feel sacrifice and discipline. Um, and there's, there's a lot of, I think, emotional pain in the producing of the, of the, of a first draft. Mm. Um, and a lot of that is, is it just a, is a sort of a regular, you know, someone who's wanting to produce new work. You know, writing is hard work. Writing, writing original text from scratch is, is, is quite hard work and there's a lot of pain involved in it for mm. anyone. But I think as a First Nations artist, um, grappling with, grappling with what, what I and what we're grappling with, um, it involves, it involves digging into, um, very personalized, um, and personally politicized um, anger and trauma, yeah. um, and so I, I sort of don't, I sort of don't dwell on that, and I offer, and I sort of don't, um, I don't let that become the heaviest part of the work. But certainly, there's a process of negotiating and navigating that as I'm writing that early stuff. Mm. What I tend to do then is switch off from being a writer and a producer of text, and I go, here's the text. I treat it as if someone else wrote it, mm. and then I come in as an actor or a performer, mm. and I go and I go, okay, let's look at this, and I try and you know that usually involves a, a separation in time. So hopefully I can have a couple of weeks through finishing that last draft, mm. and then looking at it as a, as a performer, so I can go, someone else that's not this performer wrote this. I'm going to honour that, honour that line, honour that text in a in a way where um, I give myself fully to it as a performer, mm. and try not to re-edit it and things like that. Mm. Got to be edited for rhythm and things like that sometimes, but um, I, th- I think that's the best way to do it and to negotiate that relationship between being a producer of text and being and being a performer. Mm. So um, look, at, it's uh, yeah, it's been it's been it's hard and it's painful and it's kind of like really scary. But I'm sort of just committed to that life as a writer um, and as a performer. And um, I tend to think that if if there's not a if there's not a sense of um, um, rigorously applying myself to a painful process and the works probably not doesn't really need to be made yeah. you know it's like I, I don't i don't really want to make entertainment or fluff i want to make work yeah. that's difficult and risky mm. so um i'm pretty i'm pretty comfortable in discomfort when it comes to writing new work yeah. yeah i can feel the the energy in the room as you talk about it um it's really exciting i'm very excited to see it um yeah logistics wise how long does the show run for where can listeners get tickets sure so it's um 60 minute show it runs uh eight o'clock every night from the 25th of September to the 29th of September, mm-hmm. and there's a double on the Friday night, mm. um, so that's uh, eight o'clock and a ten o'clock. Mm. It closes just so people just to so get get it in people's minds. It closes on the same night as AFL Grand Final night, <laughs> <laughs> so it's a week leading up to Grand Final night, um, yeah. and it's going to be at um it's going to be at uh, Brunswick Mechanics Institute under yeah. the uh, under a, a banner of different performance artists that's um that's been curated. It's called Critical Mass. Mm. Um, they've been really fantastic support. Mm. Um, so shout out to Susanna Day and all the crew over there. Um, Bonnie Lee Dodds. We've had some really fantastic helpers on on our show. Yeah. Um, and also for your listeners, and it'd be good to put this up on the website for people uh, for the deaf community. We've got a um Auslan interpretation on right. the Thursday night. We're really really happy to be able to budget for that. Yeah. So thanks to Deadly Fringe for our for our for the 
budget that we've been able to use for this. Yeah. Um, and Thursday night as well as Auslan, we're going to have um, a post-show Q&A. Great. Yeah. Oh, I know what I'd rather be doing than watching <laughs> Grand Final. Um, but, yeah, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us about this show. It sounds incredible. And no I worries. I can't wait to see it. Thanks so much for having us. Thank have you. a great morning. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. It's Jim Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. you got to remember, Nanox is a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am... NAIDOC means a lot to me, it's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison. Great Voices CDs on 3CR. These CDs are a unique collection. Now you can go to 3cr.org.au and you can order online all the 20 CDs, 15 issues, for $160 postage pay. Or check the individual issues and read each track on it. Every major singer is on there. You'll be excited and entranced. Go to 3cr.org.au now and check out the wonderful Great Voices CDs. Welcome back. If you're tuning in, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan. Um, right across from me, we have Anya. And earlier, as we said, George and Lauren are not here with us today, but they will be back. The time is 8.19 a.m. I don't know what's going on outside, so I can't really give you a weather update. But in the studio, we have Jesse, who is the media coordinator at Lentils as Anything, Jesse is joining us this morning to discuss the program, Food Without Borders. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast. Thank you. And I can tell you that it's sunny and windy outside. Yes. <laughs> I love it. The pedestrian has, has given us this information. Thank you so much. Um, so before we look at the program, Food Without Borders, can you tell us about your organization, Lentils as Anything? Yeah, of course. So um, Lentils as Anything is a social enterprise that consists of four restaurants and one grocery store. Uh, we're run predominantly by volunteers, 
and we work on a pay-as-you-feel model, which means that uh, the customer pays what they feel like or contributes in whatever way they want for the service and the products. Mm. And I, I, I used to go to the one in Footscray, so delicious. Mm. Yeah. Usually I'm not about that vegetarian life, but <laughs> lentils has convinced me that, you know, if I close my eyes, no, I love the food is amazing. And there's so many, um, uh, it's in different suburbs as well, right? We've got one in St Kilda. Yeah. That's the... Um, Small but mighty ones. The first one started in uh, 2000, mm-hmm. so that's 18 years now. Uh, we've got one in Thornbury, one in Abbotsford in the convent, and one in Newtown in Sydney. Yes. Yeah. Um, so we might have listeners this morning thinking, like, what is the big deal um, if we chuck out food? Why do you believe we need to reassess our attitude to food wastage? Yeah, good question. So... You know, when you go in the supermarket and you see that perfect banana with no blemishes, Mm. uh, the correct size, anything that doesn't fit that model is just thrown away. Mm. So we are an affluent country with lots of food, and yet we're throwing away really good produce um, that could be used in many different ways, but is just being thrown away just because of what it looks like. (laughs) <laughs> and you know what? Sadly, I've actually done that myself. So I'm contributing to that, which is... We all do it. You see the dented can at the supermarket and you pick the one that's not dented next to it. However, what you don't realize is that dented can is then thrown away. Mm. So what we're doing is trying to halt that um, idea that that food is no longer worthy when actually it's totally fine. It was just a dented can in the first place. Mm. And... A report by Foodwise, it's a 2010 report, 2010, sorry, um, 8 billion edible food goes to waste in Australian households. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so, like, the, yeah, it's, it's incredible when it's you... It's astronomical, right? It's astrono- yeah, that's a <laughs> strong word, astronomical, <laughs> yes. And, and then you've got to think about, as well, all the water that went to, like, make that produce. So we're a really dry country, and yet all the water that grew those vegetables is now also wasted because that food was just thrown away. Mm. Plus, then when it's um, rotting in the dump, it's making greenhouse gases. So environmentally, it's terrible, and economically, it's, it's a shame. Mm. And I guess that's why projects like Food Without Borders, that's um, where they come in. Can you tell us what this project is? Yeah, sure. So it started quite small, just going to the supermarkets and asking for whatever food that they had to throw away that was still uh, within its use-by date. And then we would take that food and use it in the Lentil as Anything restaurants. Then we started getting more and more. We started growing, and we thought, well, why not also offer it to the public? So we had in the Thornbury store a little shelf with, you know, delicious fresh bread from uh, Dench Bakery, which is really nice gourmet bread that they couldn't use anymore. And... Um, that grew, and then we joined with Second Bite, which is a bigger organization that does this. Um, it goes towards um, organizations and collects the food. And they started partnering with us, and eventually we opened our own grocery store, which is the Inconvenience Store. And um, not a convenience store, Inconvenient. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. And, um, you hit us with that one. <laughs> right? And, um, you know, that's playing on the fact that it's not, the perfect banana it's the squishy banana or the one with the bruise on it it's an inconvenient truth that this food is going to waste so uh we're now offering it to the public on again pay-as-you-feel basis Mm. and speaking of the public us listeners 
um, say we want to support food without borders and we've got like food lying around that we want to put to good use how can we get involved in this amazing yes mm. please bring it in we accept donations if your lemon tree has hundreds of lemons on it don't make lemonade bring it to the inconvenience store <laughs> you're, you know what you're selling the hell out of this <laughs> I love it yes Thank you so much, Jesse. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. I feel like we could just go on forever and ever. Um, but we do appreciate you coming in so early. <laughs> Not a problem. And um, I'll see you around at, at lunch sometime. Yes. And that was Jesse from Lentils as Anything, discussing the, pro- the project Food Without Borders. Food Without Borders aims to reduce food wastage with assistance from the community. And yes, that's you, our listeners. If you have edible food that you'd like to donate, go to Lentil as Anything, one word. Um, Go to the section Food Without Borders, scroll all the way down to the sign-up section, and it also lists different ways you can donate and the type of um, food and, um, I guess, uh, products that they're looking for and and how to donate those products. We will be right back. CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. Welcome back. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio with myself, Ayan. I was going to call myself Anya. It's Ayan. a thing. I swear. It's a thing. Yeah, we had. <laughs> I've called myself Ayan so many times. We had the guests confuse us, which is, I mean, it makes sense. We're both brown and we both have names. Yeah, Saturday. we're interchangeable, of course. So, you know, no personalities. <laughs> Um, yes, we had an amazing, amazing, amazing morning. I can't believe we pulled it off. We pulled it off and I'm exhausted and... And it's not even nine. Yeah. Mm. I feel, you know when you're on that high? Yeah. Because you've just heard so much like... Incredible things, yeah. Things and... The crash is coming. Yeah, the crash is coming. Yeah. But I love it. I love it. I mean, I guess that's Yeah, we hope um, you enjoyed listening to all of that as well. Yes. Um, Should we, like, play them out with a song? I'm trying to... um, I want to play this song, but I don't know if it's, like, appropriate... um, because I know the little kitties are out here listening at this time. Mm. Um, but you know what? I'm going to be naughty <laughs> and give a warning because it's like it's almost 8.30. So we'll play a little bit of one of my favorites. 
It's by Cardi B. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's Bodak Yellow. Oh, yes. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.